John? Hello, how are you? Yes, there you are with John and Dolores for now. Pat should be on. Oh, okay. I'm going to see him today, too. Well, you'll see a picture of him. He never uses his camera. Never, oh, ever. I see. <laughs> okay. You know, Pat. John. Wow. He's on video. He's on camera today. I, made, wow. I, made, I had to have a studio for school. Wow. wow. Look at this, John. This is amazing. Hi. Anita, how are you? Well, your whole face isn't showing, though. I can't see your whole face. That's all right. It's a team. <laughs> <laughs> we just see the top of your head. What made you decide to put your, your camera on? Because I have to do it for the kids at school. Because if you don't have the camera on, you lose them. Oh, so I have wow. to have their cameras on. I got to monitor them. You look good, Pat. You look like you lost weight. I think I got fatter. But the camera thing. Maybe the camera shaves off 10 pounds. <laughs> yeah, only for you. That you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great From the moment you're a small bambino You eat pizza, you drink vino Then they make you roly-poly you get stuffed with ravioli. If your mama's a paisano, you will have the world on a plate. So see that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. It's Fat Tuesday, Carnevale, Marte di Grasso, call it what you want. The day before Lent begins, we're recording today. You're going to hear this next week while we're all in the somber season of Lent. And uh, hopefully this episode will give you a little cheer reminder of Fat Tuesday and the time before we gave up meat or sweets or whatever you're giving up for this year's Lenten season. It's good to be back together with uh, our long lost friend, Dolores. Dolores, I haven't seen you in a couple of weeks and the Notorious P.O.B. is here on camera for the first time. What a treat. They can see me. No, they, no, they can't, can't see you. But we can't. It's the first time we could see you. <laughs> I don't understand this. It's like the television. Like, why do you have to see me? Well, because the camera's bad. Look at me. I'm like a ghost. <laughs> really? Oh, ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> don't know I come in from like another dimension. It's a horrible camera. <laughs> you probably need better lighting wherever you are. I have no lights. I have the lighting on. See, that's that's just why I don't do these things. It's too complicated. Now, now lighting becomes a factor. I need better lighting. Yeah, but it's so nice to see you. See, because you guys, you and John are, are more entertainment people. You're more into acting <laughs> and singing and dancing and, you know, lighting. And I got a light and I got a light now. I never danced in my life. No, same. No, you're like entertainers. <laughs> I don't, I'm not, I'm not a, 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 should I light a candle? Would that improve my lighting? We need to get you like a Neapolitan background. You need like an old Neapolitan tablecloth or something. I know. I like wish I could walk in there right now and just set it up for him real quick. It's taking like two two minutes. Your, your mother definitely has an old tablecloth. Oh yeah, to put the pasta on top. Yeah, thank you. No further questions. Dry. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. And then when you jar the tomatoes. Yeah, the the bad tablecloth, the the utility tablecloth. Have you had duck lately? How's the duck doing? Ducks probably. <laughs> Have you had like fifteen different ducks since I spoke to you? You want to laugh? I almost called you this week. Because she said she was going to make duck on Friday, <laughs> but she didn't. <laughs> Thank God she didn't. 
I don't know if we'd recover from that. I know. I was like, I'm going to blow his mind and have him come over because she has been like picking up duck on the reg. I don't really know why, but <laughs> like cleaning it. She's stocking up. Pat, let me ask you a question. We're sitting on the cusp of Lent. Where does duck fit in in the Lenten? That is a great question. Yeah. Um, frogs were legal. Um, I think ducks were illegal because it's the blood temperature. Wow. Cold-blooded animals are fish and warm-blooded animals are meat. Alligator was considered fish. Um, I think, I think. Alligator, I know frog was, and I think that duck would be considered meat because it's warm-blooded. So when this is all over and Easter has come, we'll go to Dolores' house. We'll celebrate a little yeah, sure. IAP Easter and we'll, we'll have duck. Easter? Is that a good time uh, to do I, it? Yeah, after nah, Easter. The, the, yeah, after Easter. Yeah. The pastilla making season is not the yes. time to make the duck. Okay. We can all bring our own pastilla. We can bring what we're making. We can have a nice little party. I like, like that. We did Christmas. That'd be nice. Yeah, I'm inviting everybody to your house. I Laura, do. So. No, I like it. I like it. Stay tuned, everyone, for that episode. I like that idea. Then it's going to become the Neapolitan, my pastilla. Let me tell you something. John's pastilla is like, it's a Sicilian dish dressed in Neapolitan clothes. <laughs> I've said that. <laughs> yes, it's, it's it very, does throw it's you very, off. It's all egg yolk and cinnamon. I'll tell you what, speaking of, you know, I was thinking about Lent and everything starts tomorrow. One of my yeah. Lenten commitments was going to be to go back to mass every morning, which I did for you know many, many years before COVID hit. And I just don't know how I feel about going out every morning. I don't know. Are you guys giving anything up? I like to try and put and like take things on for Lent. I know that's a little like unorthodox. That's such a child of the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm doing the same thing. That that's why I'm recommitment to mass and yeah, yeah, exactly. Like more like you know, I like commit myself to being more joyful. Yeah, you know, as an act of being thankful to God for all the gifts that He gives me that quite honestly, I don't deserve. (laughs) So, you know, like something like, like that kind of thing is uh, the commitment I like to make. And I actually think that's, that's my plan for, for this year. That's a good time to be thankful for the stuff that we have because everything seems so abnormal. Right. Pat, are you going to be wearing like a hair shirt and whipping yourself? What's your plan? (laughs) I, I think some of the interesting stuff is that Lent fell at the time of year when food stocks were at their lowest. Hmm. So what happened is you would harvest all this, especially before jarring, but before jarring, you would have to hoard cabbages and potatoes. Yeah. Remember something, before the Napoleonic era, you had to salt things, you had to dry them, and it really kind of crippled your capacity to put food away. So right around now, it was too early for the earliest crops to come out, and it was very late in the preservation game. So fasting during Lent occurred at a time when it kind of wasn't a bad idea just in a food economic sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Before 1900, Lent, you had one meal a day that was taken at noon, and you had nothing before that. No bread, no water, no coffee, no eggs, no dairy, no fat, no meat. And you basically lived on fish, vegetables, and olive oil. But then again, that wasn't much different what the usual diet was anyway, because a lot of people in the South of Italy at this time they only had meat a couple of times a year. So it wasn't like, well, every Saturday night I have my steak. And usually today, in a lot of parts of, especially in the area in, around Naples and the Sorrentine Peninsula, the muyacha salata was made. It was a basically a boiled polenta, and you would throw in whatever you had as far as prohibited foods that you had to get rid of before Lent started. So 
for, since you couldn't eat dairy, you'd have to throw in cheese. If you had a little bit of butter, you threw the butter in. Bacon, salami, lard, you would throw it all into a cornmeal polenta. You would cook that. Then you would put it in a baking pan and bake it. And that was the last meal before Lent started. That was your last ability to eat everything up. And then the stuff that was left, like the dried salamis and stuff like that, and cheese, that was usually put in a basket and that was hidden away. That would be covered and that would be hidden away until Easter. It's interesting now to see how we've evolved these traditions forward and all of the sort of practical purpose for the stuff that has become codified as both religious and cultural and tradition-based. It's a topic that I think is really interesting to cover today because nobody's out celebrating right now, at least not in our gang, but it's the traditional day, Fat Tuesday, that we would throughout many towns in Italy be celebrating Carnivale. And of course, in the pocketbook of Pat's Paisans and the Rolodex of expert professional Italian-Americans, when we talked about somebody to come and speak to us about Carnivale and, and Italy and passion and history and culture, you said, don't worry, I've got somebody. So why don't you introduce today's guest so we can bring her in and further the conversation? Anita's everything. <laughs> she is a artistic star. Anita has two great passions in life, a passion for Persepios and a passion for carnival. And I know this is entering Lent, and it's, but today would have been the, the height of the carnival. And I thought it would be fantastic to get Anita to come on and to talk about her love and her passion for carnival and for Venice and her artistic work with her photographs. It's a great pleasure for all of us to welcome Anita San Severino to the Italian American podcast. So Anita, welcome aboard. Thank you. Uh, Pat, you forgot my passion for Naples. That's my biggest passion. That's true. Me of all people. God have mercy on me. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> you have the Presepio, you have Naples. But I always put your Naples, your love for Naples in the Presepio category. Oh, no, it's beyond that. It's much more than that. In fact, yesterday I just had a, a text from somebody who said, it would be nice to hear something positive about Naples for once. And I'm, you know, like, please call me up on the phone or listen to my, you know, my lecture on the history of Naples. I love Venice. I love Carnivale. I love the Presepio. But my main mission in life is to get people to know the real Naples. You understand, John? You see why she's here today? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's a great mission to have. I mean, there's no one in the world who gets that more than me, than me and John. No, I, I love Naples. Believe me, I'm a... I mean, Pat and I spend in a normal year, a couple of times a year doing work over there or, you know, exploring or building partnerships and stuff. Eating. Like, eating, eating most of the time. That's basically what we do. Yeah. That's my number yeah, one. Right. <laughs> but Anita, you're, you're also an award-winning photographer. Anita gives lectures throughout the country on, on Italy and different cultural topics and historical topics, but it seems like a lot of them also include your personal photography and then the work you do to catalog Italy. Is that kind of the no pun intended, lens that has brought your passion for Italy alive? Well, what happened, how it started was I really began taking photographs of New York City because, again, I guess I have something for, I don't know if you want to call it the underdog or something. but And, and you are a Brooklyn girl. Let's put that on the record as yes, well. Yes, that's right. I'm a Brooklyn girl. And I, when I would hear people talk bad about New York, I would get so upset that I just started taking you know photographs in the city of places that people would not expect to see uh, these things like 
a window box with flowers in it and a curtain blowing in the breeze because the window is open to the street and people think, you know, everything is boarded up or bars on the windows. So they, when they would see things like that in my photographs, um, they would say, oh, where is that? Is that in the south of France or something? I'd say, no, that was Greenwich Village. Um, so it really started with me wanting to show people my point of view, how I see a place with my eyes. So I did that for a number of years and I exhibited my photos. So the focus was mainly on the photographs. Uh, then I went to Italy for the first time. It took me a long time to get there. I had studied Italian 10 years before I even got there because I knew I would go one day, but I was petrified to fly. Wow. Yeah. So I was phobic, truly phobic. I wouldn't even go to Florida. Wow. For a Brooklynite to say I wouldn't even go to Florida. Exactly. So I was that terrified, um, but I always wanted to go to Italy. And I said, I'm going to go on a ship. Wow. And people would be like, you can't do that. And I said, yes, I can. And so I found out that you can go on standby on the QE2, which was still running at the time. And I knew once I got to Italy, I'd have to go back immediately. And I couldn't do it this way, that I have to fly, but I needed to get there first. So we went on the ship and I went with my mother. My mother's a She's quiet, but she's a comedian. And as I lay on the on the floor, throwing up my guts from seasickness, she said, "You see, if we would have flown, we would have been there already." <laughs> of course, <laughs> as only an Italian mother could. That's right. And she was brave. She was not like me. So we got to Italy, and of course, um, we had to go through England and then take the, the ferry and then the train from Paris to Venice. But when I lifted up you know, the, the sliding curtain in the, in the train. And I saw Italy for the first time. I knew it was all over for me. I forgot about New York, forgot about taking any more pictures in New York. Uh, when I got to Italy, we started in uh, Venice, then went on to Florence, Rome, and then in the South. Uh, we were gone for about eight weeks. Wow. And that began a whole different life for me. My world really opened up going to Italy and the focus originally was still on the photographs. But when I would come back uh, and I did fly three months later and I went to Italy and somebody said, why would you be your first flight alone since you're so afraid? Why would you go all the way to Italy instead of a short trip to Florida? And I said, well, if I'm going to die on the plane, then I'd rather die going to Italy or coming home from Italy than from Florida. Bravo, yeah. bravo. Amen. That's, That's what true. That's what got you on the show today. Very good. That's yeah. <laughs> so gradually, because I would start talking about the places and the history, because I can't just go somewhere like that, that I love so much and not find out everything that I can about it. So I started doing more research because all I originally knew was about, you know, the South and how poor it was. And, you know, like you said, my grandmother had meat maybe twice a year when she was growing up, but it gradually transformed from talking about my photos to talking about the culture and using my photographs to demonstrate what I was talking about. And my first, my very first lecture was about the history of masks and carnival. Someone had asked me to do that uh, and then it just expanded from there. And so it became less about exhibiting my photos and more about teaching people about the culture and then using the photos to show what I was talking about. Now, Anita, let me ask you, because there's a lot of people out there 
who are listening who don't understand what is the connection between carnival and masks? Where does that come from? How is that a lived tradition in Italy? First of all, masks go back to prehistory, all the way back. And when you start seeing written history, masks have been used in every single culture, not necessarily for pleasure, but to ward away evil spirits. Uh, then you had, you know, death masks as a memoriamento for people to remember the deceased. Um, they were used in celebrations. Uh, some of them were animal masks. Some of them were, you know, made, modeled after people. But masks have always been used since the beginning of history. Then when you had the Romans doing all these festivals um, in the dead of winter, praying to the gods for spring to come and for the sunlight to come out, uh, they had certain characters like uh, the mask that Pulcinella wears. And tell everybody who Pulcinella is, because again, Pulcinella is, and everybody out there is not going to know who he is. Okay, if you ever go to Little Italy when the stores were there, or you go to Naples, you will see this character in an all-white outfit with a tall hat, almost like a chef's hat, only taller, uh, and he's got a black mask. And he is a symbol of Naples. He is a clever character, very smart, who pretends to be stupid. He always gets in trouble or causes trouble, but he always manages to worm his way out of it. And he is the model for the English version, which is Punch and Judy. That's a perfect mascot for Naples. <laughs> right. And you always see little statues of him uh, holding a plate of spaghetti and, you know, holding it up or playing a mandolin or any of those symbols that people associate with Naples. But originally that mask was based on a character that they called Makus. And it was sort of a demonic mask being worn by this character who was acting very funny and innocent. So it's this combination of, you know, the bad and the good. And then other masks were a symbol of life and death. You'll see these still today in Venice. They're all white and they're called the Volta. They're not the colorful masks that you usually see. The Volta are like the larva under the earth. That's what they represent. And just so everybody out there understands, just to give them a little background on this is, in all kind of apostolic Christianity, Orthodoxy, the Coptic Church, uh, the Armenians, the Catholic Church, Lent was a time of not just fasting from food, but fasting from dancing, no weddings, no parties, no music. So in the, in the three, basically about three weeks of carnival before Lent started, it was basically in all those cultures, Get all your dancing out of the way. Get all your reading out of the way. Have a good time now. Because once Lent begins, you are going to be in a penitential fasting mode. And in a lot of these places, people would go out and have a good time. And they would wear a mask so that people wouldn't know who it was out there having a good time. Right. So in case they did something silly or naughty, people wouldn't know who it was. Or at least they'd have plausible deniability. Could have used some of that in my 20s. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> yes. In antiquity, there's great knowledge. Now, 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 the church was always fighting against it. So the church wasn't like, you know, get it out of your system. But the state allowed it to go on. What happened in Venice was they took it to another level. They started Carnival the day after Christmas. Wow. And they went until Marta di Grasso. However, they continued wearing masks except in the summer when they left Venice and went away to the country. They started wearing masks all year round. 
And the reason for that is because the government in Venice was involved in every aspect of people's lives. Uh, the society was very rigid, very strict. Now, even though they brought having, you know, being a courtesan to a high art form, they were still very strict on the surface. A lot of it was hypocrisy. But so what happened was, as Casanova said, in a city as lacking in privacy as Venice, you needed to wear a mask or a disguise in order to have a good time. <laughs> so we know Casanova always had a good time. these people started wearing masks to hide their identity and they took it so seriously that even outside of carnival if you were walking down the street and you know you had your mask on and you saw and you recognized me somehow either through my mannerisms or you know the way i walked you still wouldn't say oh hi anita is that you under the mask no it would be uh, buongiorno, or buonasera, signor or signora mascara. Everybody was signor or signora mascara. They took this very seriously. And especially during carnival, because the, the social classes couldn't mix either. This was a chance for them to mix because nobody who knew who anybody was. You know, maybe the master of the house had a thing for his servant girl. So they would arrange ahead of time that during carnival, they were going to have a party and they would meet somewhere and they would know who the other was. And this way they could have their little fling. People who wanted to go gamble in the casino and already owed money, they would go in masks. And even if the owners of the casino or the state knew who they were, they couldn't touch them because of this fact of wearing masks. And there is um, the document going back to 1268 is the first official document that talked about people wearing masks for carnival. And one of the documents, which I thought was hysterical, but there was a reason for it. Um, One of them states exactly this. Men are forbidden from entering convents dressed as women in order to commit indecent acts. Whoa. (laughs) Yes, it was because these convents were not made up uh, simply of women who had a religious calling. Again, because the society was so strict and and a single woman even talking to a man by herself, unaccompanied by a chaperone, could bring disgrace to the family name. So what they would do is they put their unmarried, unengaged daughters into convents for safekeeping until they got a proposal. So these women were not there because they had a religious calling. They were like prisoners. Because they had Italian fathers. That's right. So what happened was at Carnival, this was the perfect opportunity for them to leave these windows and doors unlocked so that men dressed like women, so people would think that they were, could climb into the convent and have a party too. They went crazy at Carnival time. It was their opportunity to do that. A lot of times where they sent off their problematic daughter as well. So a lot of times the convents became the, the um, reciprocatories, re, re, um, repositories, repositories of a problematic daughter. Oh, true, true. That's why in Italy, convents had very good food. Some convents and very good baking and pastry making, and lace making and embroidery. Yes, because there were certain convents that were geared toward the daughters of the rich and famous. Yeah, and they also had to keep them busy and occupied doing something so that they wouldn't try to run away. <laughs> you know, but the carnival celebrations in the piazza, especially, were like one giant party, circus performers. I mean, this wasn't simple stuff. They brought in animals that had never been seen in Venice before because it's, 
It's not a, you know, there's no countryside really in Venice. I think it was the first hippopotamus or rhinoceros they brought it in. And this wasn't just for enjoyment. This was also to show the world how much power and money Venice had that they could afford to bring in these exotic wild animals from around the known world at the time. Um, and then for the wealthy and the people that the wealthy wanted to be there, they would have these masked balls, which are fabulous. I mean, I've been there, I've been to the balls like four times already, five different balls, and they are fantastic. I'm excited to hear your take on the modern day balls and these traditions, because I think for the casual observer of Italian history, Venetian history, Italian culture, there's this idea of Venice. Yeah, I guess it comes from Carnivale, Casanova, the beauty of it, this romantic libertine city that the whole world came to as a playground. But as you explain it, a lot of that is actually born out of what is throughout the majority of the year, a kind of very staid and repressed culture and a very hierarchical culture. But Venice, like you say, is at this point up until 1797, a city of world importance, right? I mean, even as the empire declines in economic importance, culturally as part of the grand tour for its history, for what it's accomplished, its former empire. But in 1797, Napoleon invades and ends the thousand-year-old Venetian Republic. And from that point until the unification with Italy in 1866, Venice is traded between uh, first Napoleon and then eventually the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And there there was no carnival for 200 years after that. From the time that Napoleon took over Venice, there was no more carnival for 200 years. So that, that was a break. It was not continuous until this day. It only started up again in 1979 when they were starting the Biennale and they wanted a big party. What eventually happened was, you know, the Venetians were very happy to bring back that tradition. It's a little bit different in that before the costumes used to be based on the Commedia dell'arte uh, traditions. Those were the main costumes. Today, it's more fantasy, whatever you want to dress as. The materials are luxurious. Uh, the, the masks and the headdresses are phenomenal. It's like something surreal. But it didn't start again until 79. And then the Venetians embraced it again wholeheartedly. But what happened was, by the time the internet came into strong use, the word again got out to the rest of the world. And the rest of the world started descending on Venice for Carnival again, and the Venetians stopped going. Mm. So basically today, Carnival is for the world, not for the Venetians. They might have their own private parties or private balls in some somebody's palazzo who still has one. But for the most part, it's now a global phenomenon. Uh, and when you're there, I mean, I meet people from, you think Romania, Australia, New Zealand, Azerbaijan, I mean, all these places around the world, Portugal, you know, other places in Europe. The Americans started coming a little bit later, but now they're, you know, pretty much uh, infiltrated the whole thing, too. But the Venetians pretty much stay away. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Anita, let me ask you a question on that note. The revived Carnival in 1979 
the rebirth of a mask making tradition that had been sort of dormant and all of this reassessment and revival of local Venetian culture. I mean, it's, it's clearly paralleled politically because in the 70s and then into the 80s and 90s, you have the birth of the Lega Nord, which was originally the League of Veneto, or which was a component that made up the Lega Nord eventually. Uh, you have a, a revival of the Venetian language. Now it's got protected status within the Veneto. Uh, you see a lot more sort of independence movement coming out in Venice. But at the same time, this great tragedy, like you're describing, which is Venetians have been priced out of their city. They don't live there most of the year. It sounds like they're not there much for Carnival. From what I understand, about 3 million tourists descend on the city during the time of Carnival leading up to Marte di Grasso today, Fat Tuesday. So when you first went and over the course of the time that you've gone, has it continued to change? Have you seen change? Oh, yes. Yes, a lot of change. First of all, my first time at Carnival was in the year 2000. And what has changed has kind of, unless you're going to a ball, which can be a little bit expensive, but the fun used to be in, in the piazza. And you went there, and the first time I went, I took, now this is before digital, 125 rolls of film. Wow of 36 pictures on a roll. That's how much there was to see. And I mean, it was like waves of people coming at me in these phenomenal costumes. And we're not talking Halloween costumes. We're talking luxurious fabrics that take all year to have made. There's schools of people who, uh, groups who go together and, you know, decide on a theme and then have all their identical costumes made or, you know, the male version and the female version. I couldn't look any place fast enough to take another picture. What has changed in all that time is that today you have more spectators rather than participants in the square. So you can go in the square and see... 500 people in street clothes trying to take a picture with one person in a costume. Wow. I don't know why this changed, but it makes me very, very sad because, you know, they're there uh, and they want to take pictures of and with these people, but they're not really participating. So for me, what really changed was the fun became less about being in the street or in the piazza and more about going to the balls to see people who were really, really into it. And what happened, what they were trying to do in the last few years now is bring back um, these competitions to bring people back into the square in the costumes. They have competitions for the best mask, the best costume, and every day people can march through the piazza and other people watch them. And then at the end, they vote on this. And there was one tradition that they're still carrying on today where it's called the procession of the 12 Marias and it's one of the opening ceremonies. Uh, and years and years ago, back in the, you know, the early centuries of this, the girls that had, didn't have a dowry had a harder time getting married. So what they would do is they would hold it like a beauty pageant to pick out the girls that were the most beautiful and present 12 of them to the doge who would then give them massive jewels so that they would have a dowry and they could get married. Wow. So they brought that tradition back again. And now one of the things you'll see on the opening day of Carnival is the procession of the 12 Marias. They're brought in, they sit on those things like they used to carry the kings and the popes. Betty adjusted Doria. Yeah. And they used to bring, they bring them in the square and present them to now someone dressed like the Doge. Uh, and then the people would vote on the, the prettiest 
girl. And she would be the one that was chosen the next year, the one who won was chosen the next year to do what they now call the flight of the angel, which is they harness the woman from the top of the bell tower in Venice. Uh, and she's brought out over the square while all the people underneath are looking up at her. And then she's slowly, slowly lowered to the ground. And that signals like, you know, now let the fun begin. And what day is that? When, when does it actually kick off? Now the carnival starts usually a full two weeks before Marta di Grasso. So that's the initial start. The night before, they have a parade of boats in the Grand Canal. And again, it's, you know, mostly tourists for those two weeks. And one of the other reasons they did it this way, they brought it back, was because winter in Venice was basically dead. There was no money coming in. And now since Venice is based on tourism, they needed more tourists coming in in the winter. So this was the perfect antidote to that. The problem is that it's easier to find a mask shop than a grocery store today. Yeah. So people who live there, little by little, all their normal services, like a dry cleaner, a laundry, um, going to a small mom and pop butcher or a supermarket, small supermarket, they're dying out because they're building, you know, more and more places to suit tourism. Wow. And it's, it's kind of a shame because it's, you know, for us to go, I, I try to revere Venice in a way of not treating it as, you know, it's my playground, but to respect the culture and to love it and learn about it and appreciate it. But it's a shame because, you know, every year, 10,000 more people leave Venice to live on the mainland because they can't afford to be in Venice and it's too difficult to get the services that you need. So there has to be a balance. Of all the Italian cities I've been to, none felt as much of a museum than Venice. Right. And this was, I, I was in Venice, I mean, a solid 15 years ago. I'm sure it's only gotten worse. And it felt like, uh, like a kind of like a Disney world. It felt like a park like a theme park, like a Venetian theme park. And, you know, when you do see a Venetian, like on the Vaporetto, I know if I had, if I were living there and I were a Venetian, I'd be very upset. Sure. It's like when you come down here to the Jersey shore in the summer and you can't get a space on the beach because everybody from North Jersey and New York is on the beach. Right. It feels like that. So I can imagine how they feel, but even some of the stores that I had been going to, for almost 20 years with the uh, husband and wife working. They've changed now. The last time I was there, which was last March, I came home, actually, uh, I was there for Carnival in last year in February. And the night before my ball was supposed to take place, they canceled the rest of Carnival. Wow. Even then, the store that I had been going to for 20 years, the husband and wife were gone and it was sold to someone from Southeast Asia. Yeah. Um, so it's changing a lot, but I, I do want to say one thing. Uh, this is not a criticism of those people either because, and I'll say this not only for Venice, but for Naples too, a lot of the young people today do not want to follow these traditions. They're too time consuming to do, to learn how to do that Burano lace. It's too time consuming to learn how to make a presepio. So a lot of these people from Southeast Asia, they are learning these traditions because they are willing to be apprentices for years in learning how to do uh, the presepio, the mask making and all of this stuff. 
So they're actually, in the end, probably going to keep these traditions alive. So this is not to denigrate them in any way, because especially when I was in, um, in Naples, that work is hard, making a presepio and making the figures. You're in a, you know, I went to a studio and it's a, a, an enclosed room with no windows, with ovens that heat up to 800 degrees. You think any teenage Neapolitan boy wants to do that today just because his father did it? No. So who's willing to work that hard and under tough conditions? I'll tell you a funny anecdote. I was shopping on San Gregorio Armeno in Naples to get Persepio pieces. And one of the guys said to me, don't buy from him across the street. He has a Romanian working in the back, <laughs> painting the pieces. Yeah, right. And it's true because if it's not going to become an industry that's run by people who are not ethnically Italian, not the Neapolitan, it's definitely going to be a mixed one. Yes. You could see that in, in Venice. I mean, I, I was lucky enough to be able to spend New Year's Eve there. My wife and I, I guess two New Year's Eves ago now, right before the pandemic. And uh, we were not planning. We were actually going to go skiing. And we landed and we were talking to the taxi driver. And he was saying, oh, you know, Venice is very, very quiet these days because there had been the flooding and the Aqua Alta was at a record high. I don't think it was as high as the 60s, but mm-hmm. all of the news and all of the charitable fundraisers, everybody had this sense that Venice was kind of sunk. And he said, you know, the truth of the matter is, yes, it was higher than it had normally been, but this is nothing to Venetians. So within a couple of weeks, they were back on their feet, but there were no tourists. So we decided to detour and spend a couple of days in Venice. We'd both been there over the years, but it was the first time we'd ever gone without tourists. And while it was a great relief to feel like you had the city to yourself because you'd never get to have that in Venice. At the same time, there was this sort of sad gloominess to it because we really had the city to ourselves because there are no locals anymore. There are very few Venetians. Exactly. And, and frankly, you can, you can kind of feel a little bit like that today. I mean, I'm you know here in Brooklyn and sometimes throughout this last year of virus, you walk around and you get that same feeling of kind of a, a plague town where nobody's out and the city doesn't have its life and its its heart. And look, you're you're passionate about Naples. No city in the world is more defined by the cacophony of its people than Naples. Right. I think Brooklyn is its spiritual sister city because I, I always feel they're very similar. But this whole idea of a of a, a place sort of closed down and and shut down. We've been suffering through it and and in pain for a year. But these people are watching their city go through this permanently. And and it is tragic. Yes. And there is another way that I look at it in the sense that Venice is also always has this, um, it's, it's its own character and it has this aura of mysteriousness anyway. It's probably the only city left in the world where you could walk, especially as a woman, alone at night at one o'clock in the morning in these narrow alleys and feel completely safe because there is very, very, very little crime in Venice, especially in the main city of Venice. So I would walk through there and I would love the sound of my own footsteps because they're very, very loud. The water makes everything even louder. So, you know, walking in the foggy night with no one else around, it was a a very much of a dreamscape for me, but that was only because it was winter and nighttime. You don't want to see Venice empty in the daytime because that's her lifeblood going down the drain. You know, it's really very, very sad. 
And yet they need the tourism because they have made it so that the city will never survive without it. Yeah. I, I got to ask you a question. Venice is like 80 islands, right? More or less of different shapes and sizes and levels of population. The islands, it's 120 islands and 400 bridges connecting each of them. Those 120 islands, I understand that the main island is overrun with tourists. But, but the whole the, city is overrun with tourists. Even the outlying islands? Well, no. The, here's the thing. 120 islands connected by 400 bridges are in Venice, what we call Venice. But the outer islands, like San Michele, which is the cemetery island, um, then you have San Erasmo and La Madonna del Orto. Those are the places where they grow the greenery that they sell at the market in Venice. So, yes, you have outer islands um, that people go to, but rarely are the tourists there. But there are quite a ways. I mean, Murano, uh, the glassmaking, yes, people live there, but most of them are involved in the glassmaking process. Burano is one of my favorite islands. It started out as a fishing village. It's where the lace was made because the women had nothing to do when their husbands were out at sea fishing. And, you know, Venetians, like I said, if you're, if you show them your enthusiasm, your love for their culture and their city, they are wonderful. One night, we were, my cousin and I were coming back from a party for the Feast of the Redentore. And we were on a big party boat. It was the last boat that was going back. And somehow we fell asleep through this. It was like three o'clock in the morning. We were the only Americans on this party boat because the Redentore until just a few years ago was, was considered the most Venetian of all holidays because you had to come there with a boat. Now they started with these party boats. So what happens, we, my cousin and I both fell asleep on the boat and it turned around, was going back to the island where it came from, which was very far away, about an hour's ride on the boat. And there were no more boats for the night. There's no boat until morning. Oh my God, where are we supposed to stay? What are we supposed to do? Oh, don't worry. I have a friend who's a, a fisherman and he's got to go to this island. And then from there, I have we have another friend who takes the vegetables to the market. Uh, so we'll get to. So in, we transferred from the big boat to a small private boat to another small private boat on another island. We got back to Venice at like six o'clock in the morning, and it was that's the, Italy. The best. That's time. Italy. Italy is at its best when things are at its worst. Come that's on. right, and that has happened to me in other places too. So you know, the Italians don't ever tell me anything bad about an Italian. I don't want to hear it, or anything bad about Italy, because if you want Italy to be like someplace else that's totally organized and everything is run like a clockwork, then go to that place. That's what called Germany. Get, what you're going to get in Italy is humanity. You're going to get the humanity. That's right. And the ability for people to connect, not knowing each other. And then you feel like, you know, you end up being family forever. Let the games begin. Mediaset Italia has the most exciting, high-octane, full drama game shows and reality TV this fall. With new seasons of Celebrities Stuck Together 24-7 on Grande Fratello Vip. Testing your smarts on Chi Vuole Essere Milionario with Jerry Scotti. And the biggest talents in Italy discovered with Tu Si Che Vales. Plus, more trivia tests on Caduta Libera and important stories and exclusive interviews with live Nonè Ladurso. Direct TV has the Italian TV you love. Get Mediaset Italia a la carte for $10 a month plus taxes or the Italian Direct Package for $20 a month plus taxes. 
Visit directtv.com forward slash media set or call 1-877-912-2702 to learn more and subscribe. World Direct a la carte service requires activation of a qualifying base package. For new customers, equipment lease, activation, early termination, equipment non-return, and other charges and restrictions apply. Call 1-877-912-2702 or visit att.com for full details. So you've been going for all these years. Tell us what your favorite costume is, because I know there's so many famous traditional Venetian costumes. Well... The first go, it was it was absolutely gorgeous. It was heavy, and no wonder those noble women needed people to dress them because there's like seven or eight layers of clothing that you have to tie on. No zippers, no such thing as a zipper. Not even really buttons. They were hooks and they were strings, and that you had to tie on. So mine was a Renaissance uh, woman's costume, and it was absolutely gorgeous. And if I wanted to buy, to rent it, it was only $300. Uh, to buy it, it would have probably cost me three or $4,000 because everything is made by hand using the real gold threads that they use in the original costumes. And the weight of it is the same and it's all done the way it was done back then. So it was, it was just magnificent to wear. And you're transformed. The minute you put it on, you are transformed into another person. And that's what makes it so wonderful, you know, especially once you put that mask on. And then uh, in 2017, I had my own costume made here and I brought it with me and I wore it. Anita, can I ask you a Jersey City based question? Sure. <laughs> and I ask this with all due respect. How did they use the facilities years ago with all those different layers and pulleys and looks? I've often thought about that. I would just, I wouldn't use it. I mean, <laughs> let me say this. It's not easy because when I had to even fit into the bathroom in that Renaissance costume, which was about six feet wide around, um, very, very difficult. <laughs> I tried not to drink anything at That's all. That's what I figured. And wow. eat very little, eat very little. <laughs> but to go to these balls, you have to wear a costume. And you have to walk in with your mask on. But then when you're eating and talking, if you want to take the mask off, a lot of people do. But it's like walking into a, a fantasy because it's the red carpet, candle lit all the way. You're walking up these palace steps and then you go inside and the room is lit with, you know, hundreds of chandeliers in these palaces. And you have all these people going up. And from the back, you know, when you see these women in their gowns going up the stairs and you're behind them, you really could think that you're in another century, truly in another century. It's just, it's just fabulous. And uh, again, there are a few costumes that are still from the old times. El Medico is one of them. And it's called El Medico de la Peste. And really, that one is, is in use today. And actually, I'm sure you've seen the mask with the long beak. Yeah that very long, weird-looking beak. Uh, that was actually not a costume from the Commedia dell'arte. That's what the real doctors wore during the plague. So they were covered from the top of their head all the way down to the floor uh, in a black outfit with cape. They wore gloves, and then they had a ruffled thing around their neck 
to cover any possible space that there might be. And then they wore this mask, but it wasn't a mask uh, with a beak just for the sake of looking like a big bird. In that mask were fragrant herbs because they had to go around the city. Because remember, you know, the, the whatever hospitals they were on different islands, um, they were filled with people. I mean, half of Europe died in, their, in the plague. So what they would do is they would fall on the streets and they would just be dying in the street. So these plague doctors would go up to them with these long sticks and touch them with the stick to see if they were still alive. But the stench of the dead and dying was so overpowering, the only way they could stand it was to stuff these openings in that mask with herbs. Wow. So that it protected them from the smell. Uh, today, that mask is considered a good luck. Interesting. And then there was another one. This one was worn by women. It was called La Muta or La Moreta. And it's a black velvet mask. It's a circle. And there's no straps to keep it on. So now you're a noble woman and you want to go out. And at one point, they were required to wear a mask if they were going out to the opera or to the casino in public. But I always said this mask had to be invented by a man because the only way she could keep the mask on and keep her identity a secret was to bite on this button on the inside of the mask. If she opened her mouth to talk, the mask would fall off. <laughs> so, uh, and the other thing that I always say that I neglected to say at the beginning of this, please, people, remember this. Carnival was not invented in New Orleans or Rio de Janeiro. No, the Venetian Carnival was the first and still is the most elegant. And it's not about drinking. It's about, you know, being in costume and transporting yourself into another world. Not in those dresses. Can't be about right. drinking. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not by any stretch of the imagination. Unless you have a bunch of ladies in waiting. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you're really noble. Somebody to undress you, unwrap you. But don't forget, these men are as fully invested in these costumes as the women that they accompany to these balls and stuff. So it gives everybody a chance to step out of your own skin, out of your own time period, and just go back. And it is such a relief, such a wonderful feeling to step back in time. It's one of the greatest and the most unique experiences that you can have. Well, you found Venice as, a, as an Italian-American, as a, as a tourist. You've obviously left it as in some part of your heart and soul a Venetian someone who's cataloged its beauty, who's cataloged its culture, who's now gone out and professed its culture uh, all over the, the country. I mean, you, you've spoken everywhere. Your lectures are very, very highly regarded. But at the same time, you're now a representative and evangelist for, for the culture in the island. So if there are people in our audience who, God willing, when these things return, want to participate, you know, my wife and I always talk about, oh, we should go to Carnivale in Venice. But in some sense, it's kind of intimidating to figure out how, because Italians aren't good marketers, really. So you don't really, you can't just Google, how do I go to, like, how would you recommend somebody go? Actually, you can. That's the beauty of it, because again, it has turned global. So they have learned how to market this very well. When I first started going, no, we went there and I had to walk in person to every place. Um, well, someone recommended this costume place to go to. Then someone else recommended 
you know, where to, where to buy the best mask. And then someone else told me which ball to go to. Uh, so you had all these different places that you had to go and find. Today, you sit down at your computer, you go online, you look up, hello, Venezia, and then you look for Carnival. And then by, say, October, November of the year before the Carnival's coming up, you can find out where you want to order your costume. You can pick out your costume. You can pick out your mask. Although I recommend going in person because they have to try everything on and that's half the fun of it. But you buy your ball tickets online. You look at a schedule of events that's happening at every hour of the day and you can pick out what you want. You can buy your ball tickets online. And if anybody has any questions, I am very happy to you know, give you my email address and they can contact me and I can walk them through it. You should run tours, Anita. I, you know, I would, and I've been asked to do that so many times, but I can't because of my back. I never know when it's gonna be bad when I'm not going to be able to walk for a few days. So what if I'm in charge of a whole group of people and then I can't... Got to get you an assistant. Yeah, maybe you bring us. You need a team. <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be there as like entertainment and you could be the teacher. We could work that out because there's something to do every hour of the day. And some of it's pricey and some of it's not. And there are all different prices for the balls too. So it's a wonderful experience and people shouldn't miss it just because they don't know how to do it. It's not that difficult anymore. Anita, do you have a website that we have to share your yes. photo? Yes, I do. Um, it's called Anita Italia More Mio. So not two A's in the middle there, just one. Italia More Mio.com. And we're going to link that to our show page. So for those of you who check out the show on our website, we're going to link that. And we're also going to link Hello Venezia. So God willing, next year, if uh, if all goes yeah, as planned. Year, yeah, this year they use it on Zoom. It's not the same. No, I, I have this, having done all these shows on Zoom, as much as it's been great for the podcast, I have to say no event is quite as, as thrilling on Zoom as it is in person. It's much cheaper than parking in Manhattan, though. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> Fact. Oh, my God. Yes. I do miss grabbing dinner with you guys afterwards, though. That's a fact. Well, we could we could adjust that if we all went to your house with Duck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make it happen. And we could make believe we were in Manhattan. I'll pay you to park in the driveway. I'll pay you to park in the driveway. That's perfect. That's you got a huge driveway. You got a nice sized driveway. Yeah, we'll do we fake do. Manhattan. I'll ding yeah. your car as I pull it out. It'd be perfect. I'll give you. I'll come in ticket. like cursing and sweating from the commute. I've got someone parking the car. <laughs> well, wherever we meet, it's going to be good to be together, and uh, hopefully, everybody that's been listening and enjoying Anita's amazing uh, lecture recollections, memories, and. Uh, and Venice, you know, mar married to the sea, La Serenissima. I mean, they, they don't call it the most serene republic for nothing. It is a wonderful place. That's right. And for those of us who have been there or haven't been there yet, I highly recommend, you know, seeing Venice in all of its finery in any time of the year. has got to be great. But doing it at Carnivale with all of the expert advice that Anita shared with us is a great opportunity. So if you've been dying to get there for Carnivale, and you've listened to this episode, God willing, next year, maybe we'll all be there to celebrate together. And if we do see each other in masks, I guess now it's 2021, 2022. I'm wearing a Pulcino. I'm wearing a Neapolitan. I know you even are, I, yes. Even if I'm in Venice, I'm sorry? Pat, you can be Pulcinella. Yes, I'm going to do. I, I have to represent with a Neapolitan mask. <laughs> and you got to... 
it won't surprise Pat or Dolores to know I actually have a Carnivale costume that I bought from a. You? Used, yes, I John? did. Yeah. No. <laughs> so, so it's, it's actually what I was wearing when I met Nicole. Believe it or not, I was actually wearing. Oh, yes. so had the love story. Wow, really? Yeah, it is. Long story for off air, but uh, yeah, that's. I she have was it. like, so, I got a. She dreamt a whole life of a man in, in a Venetian carnival costume and. And then she gets John. <laughs> More like she avoided me, you know? and then she gets me. Yeah, <laughs> it's the southern call? Italian Sicilian. That's <laughs> my version of yeah, Venice. It was a bootleg version. But either way, I've got something to wear so we can all go. And uh, hopefully you got enough information from this wonderful episode to, to make your way there, too, and meet us for what I'm sure would be a wonderful, wonderful week in a great city. So, Anita, thank you very much for coming on, and You're we look welcome. forward to having you back. Thank you. Pleasure. Nice to meet you. So from all of us, the Italian American podcast, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. If you want your life to be great, see that you're born an Italiano and your life will be great. See that you're born in Italiano and-